May we see his sovereign majesty as we approach his word from Romans chapter 10, verse 18 to 21. This is the, the last sermon from Romans uh, this year. Next time I approach this book, would be going to Romans 11. And that would be in the new year. Please hear the word of God. Let me read from verse 5 of Romans 10 all the way to the end. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. But the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is the word of God. Let me repeat what I have said in the last uh, two Sundays. The Bible is clear that not all have faith. And as I've said, faith is not made in China. It's not made in Kenya either. It's made in heaven. And anyone who has faith has received it as a gift from God, lest any man should boast. The Bible says of the Israelites about their privileges. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, 
The worship and the prophecies to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So then it is shocking, perplexing, bewildering that the Israelites remained in unbelief. And so in, in, in verse 16, he quotes Isaiah and he says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's Isaiah 53 verse 1. Not everyone who hears the gospel and not everyone who hears the gospel believes. Or rather, no one, not everyone who hears the gospel understands. And not everyone who hears the gospel and understands believes. This is one of the most frustrating features about preaching, about teaching the gospel, about evangelism. You go prepared with the word of God as a preacher. And you come to people like you. Some are believers, others are unbelievers. And to the shock of the preacher, there are people who walked through that gate, through that door today without faith, and they will go out without faith. It's frustrating for the preacher that I labored hours upon hours to prepare this message for you. And yet you come in without faith and you go back home without faith. But the delight of the gospel is that there are those who hear the gospel and they understand. And the power of the gospel is this, that they may hear the gospel today and 10 years down the line, they remember by the power of the Spirit of God what was said today. And they believe. And they are saved. So preachers, we need not be too frustrated. But unbelievers, there is no good news for you to wait for 10 years to remember this that is being preached now. It's better to remember it right now when it's being served hot. And take it to your heart. This problem of unbelief is not only resident among the Jews. But it's especially frustrating. For the Jews to remain in unbelief when they heard the gospel, when they understood the gospel, when they had all these privileges of the gospel and still remain in this obstinate, rebellious unbelief. And so today, Paul will address both groups of people, both the Jews and Gentiles, but he believes with the Gentiles here. Of course, verse 16 refers to the Jews. Lord, who has believed our report? He comes to verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Who are the they there? It's a reference to both Jews and the Gentiles. It's a reference to everyone.
have they not heard the gospel? Indeed, the Bible says, they have. They've heard the gospel. Okay, they've heard the gospel. Did they not understand the gospel? Verse 19. Well, Moses says that they understand the gospel. That's verse 19. And then verse 20 tells us, Isaiah says that they understand the gospel. So what's the problem then? Is the problem with God? Well, verse 21 tells us no. Because God says of Israel, all day long I've held out my hands wanting to welcome them and to receive them. I've been inviting them. So there's the structure of the passage. But it's very reassuring to know that the Lord will never be tired of inviting sinners for salvation. His arms are ever open to such. His ears are ever attentive to their pleas for mercy. He is willing. Doubt no more. So two things from this passage. Verse 18 tells us, speaks about the Gentiles. And the question is, have they not heard? Because we, we've just been told in verse 17 how faith comes. How does it come? Faith comes from hearing. So have they not heard? And then we'll address the Gentiles from verse 19. I mean, the, the, the Israelites from verse 19. But let's consider ourselves as Gentiles there in verse 18. Have the Gentiles not heard the gospel? The answer to this, very, to this question is very quickly provided. Have they not heard the gospel? Indeed, actually, they have. And then the reason is given to prove that they have. Now, let me explain to you this question. There is a play on words here in the original language between the Greek word for hearing and the Greek word for obedience, which are very, very close. The two words are very close. In fact, you have the word here. Have they not heard? And then the word obedience is the word piper here. So to obey is simply to more than hear. That's what it means. But the root word of hearing and obedience are the same. I mean, we, we understand that too. When you call your, your daughter, come, and then two minutes down the line, they haven't come. What do you ask? Have you not? Have you not heard? Well, 
they, they say they, they responded. Ruth, they responded, yes. But then two minutes down the line, Ruth has not turned up. So the question is, have you not heard? But wait, there was a response. So clearly they heard. What do you mean? You needed to more than hear. You needed to hyper hear. That's the translation. Those who really hear are the ones who not only get the message, but who respond to the message. So if you're an unbeliever, don't say that I've had the gospel in some sense. Because really, if you have heard, then you would have responded. How can you hear such good news and say I've heard and do nothing about it? You get the point. So there shouldn't be any contrast between the hearing and the obedience of the gospel. Because that's a term used by Paul often in the book of Romans and Galatians. When you hear the gospel, you're supposed to do what with the gospel? Respond to the gospel in obedience. When the gospel tells you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You believe. And that's when you've heard the gospel and then you're saved. So obeying the gospel is not works. Even if there is an implicit command in the gospel. That is a call to obedience in trust, in trusting in Jesus Christ. Let's come back to this question. The Gentile nations, have they had the gospel? Because the question is, have they not heard? The they applies both to Jews and Gentiles, since both have the work of uh, creation speaking to them. That is, that, that, that is general revelation. The general revelation does not just speak to the, the Gentiles. But it is especially the Gentile nations who depended solely or only on the general revelation to know God. So when Paul cites here Psalm 19, verse 4, which is, uh, it has verses that begin with general revelation, then it goes to special revelation. It would be wise to go there. Psalm 19. This is what the word of God says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his hard work. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out, this is the verse cited, their voice goes out through, through, uh, through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. The sound and the voice of the created order went and goes into all the earth. 
There is no one left out. And this speaks of the witness in which the visible works of God in creation give to all the world the understanding that there is God. And through the created order, you see God. And that's what the Bible says. In Romans 1, Paul said, for his invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have all been clearly perceived. How? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, everyone is without excuse. Because the work of creation tells us that there is God. Let me give you an example. If you happen to come from Mount Kenya like me, you'd see the glory of uh, Mount Kenya. Surely you don't assume that the God who made Mount Kenya is smaller than Mount Kenya, do you? Of course not. When you drive towards Nakuru, you see the, 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 the majesty of the great Rift Valley in the escarpments. You don't think by any means that God is smaller than that, do you? When you hear that the great Rift Valley comes all the way from the Dead Sea going to Zimbabwe, you don't say God's dimensions are smaller than that, do you? And yet you haven't seen Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest. So his invisible attributes are clearly perceived by what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. This is not a confused sound because the Bible speaks about their words. More definite, distinct, and intelligible witness of the gospel went forth to the ends of the world. And uh, when you look at how Paul cites that, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is what Matthew Henry says in commenting about that verse. He says, under the Old Testament, God provided for the publishing of the work of creation by the sun, moon, and stars. So now, for the publishing of the work of redemption to all the world by the preaching of gospel ministers who are therefore called stars. Those who preach the gospel, Daniel says, will shine forth like stars of the heaven. Those who win souls for Christ. We also know that the Lord guided the apostles to preach the gospel, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but also to Samaria and to the ends of the world in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Even among the Gentile nations. Let me give you an example of the spread of the gospel to Africa. Church history has recorded it that uh, John Mark the author of the second gospel, evangelized in Africa. It's reported 
that the very first person that he preached to was in Alexandria, and he was a cobbler. He was a man who was mending shoes for others. And uh, he continued evangelizing through the whole area around Egypt. It's reported that he became the first bishop of Alexandria at around 43 AD. The Christianity spread widely starting from Egypt, where it was well received by the people of Greek origin, and then to the cults of the Egyptian or Hamitic origin, so that by 180 AD, there was a sizable group of Christian believers there. In the city of Alexandria, there was a large church with many converts of Greek origin. By the second to that centuries, it was a very great, the very first Christian uh, Bible school was there in Alexandria. So the very first theological school in the world was in Africa, in Alexandria. It was called, uh, 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 it, it had uh, Clement as its uh, principal and later origin. But the bishops of uh, Alexandria were both influential in Christendom for a long time, showing how established the Christian faith was. For example, Augustine of Hippo, Hippo is in Africa, was such an influential theologian. But then Christianity spread further into Labia and to the rest of the Northern Africa, to such places as Cyrenica, Carthage, and to the whole of Northern Africa, so that by 300 AD, there were more than 250 bishops in charge of hundreds of churches in the region of, uh, from Egypt, going all the way to Mauritania in West Africa. All this was accomplished through evangelism, person to person, door to door, preaching. What can we say? Their voice has gone to all the earth their words to the ends of the world. All the Roman provinces of Africa, modern-day Tunisia, Numidia, eastern half of modern-day Algeria, the church in the city of Carthage experienced the power of God in salvation. So that even when, uh, when persecution broke out, they were willing to die for the Lord. But the spread of the gospel in Africa was further progressed by the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, which you know. And uh, if you go to the book of Acts, you would see Philip in chapter 8 evangelizing to the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, through him, the gospel went forth. As we come to Acts 11, we are told in verse 20 that... There were a few men from Cyrene. Cyrene is in Africa, who were preachers. And then you come to Acts 18, and you are told of Apollos, who was an African, a native of Alexandria in Egypt. He was a well-established Christian, and the Bible says he was being fervent in spirit and competent in scriptures. He taught accurately the things concerning 
Jesus. And the Bible says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Amen to that. But then you hear men who are perverts in central Kenya saying that Christianity came from Wazungu. I have not read any Muzungu so far. This is all Africans embracing the true faith, believing in Jesus Christ who is freely offered in the gospel. And so, brothers from Central, give them not a minute, give them not a second, because they are liars. They are liars. They do not know what they are talking about. Have they not heard? They heard and they rejected the truth. So the problem does not lie in the efficacy of the word or in the power of the gospel or in the power of Christ to save. The problem has been put on their feet, the feet of the Gentiles. They are, be they are being told here that the voice of the good shepherd has gone forth. You've had it. You better not reject it if you want salvation for your soul. Secondly, what about Israelites? What about Jews? But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, so he first cites the, the Bible. And he has two witnesses because the Bible says by the witness of two or three witnesses, you shall establish the truth. But how can they understand what the nations, and how can, they, how can the Jews not understand what the nations understood who depended only on general revelation? So that when the gospel was proclaimed to them, they received the word of God with meekness. Not only did the Jews have the benefit of general revelation, but they also had the benefit of special revelation. So the obvious question is, was it a problem of understanding? Bible says, no, they understood. Paul dispels this faulty thinking, one from Moses by the law, and he does that. He quotes a, a passage from Moses, which is a threat to the Jews. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah. So let's look at the threat of the law from Moses. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. They've, they've made me jealous with what is not God, the Bible says. They've provoked me to anger with their idols. And so what will I do, God says? I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. This is in response to the fact that so many people in Israel had heard the message of the, God, of the gospel, but they did not obey it. And so Moses warned them saying, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. The Jews not only had the gospel offer, but saw the Gentiles accepting self-same offer and greatly profited.
by receiving of it. And we will see that in chapter 11. This is how when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. The Bible says, the Jews on their part refused. In all places where the apostles went with the gospel, who did they go to first? First to the Jews. They made the gospel offer. Did most of the Jews receive it with meekness? No. They constantly refused with only a handful of Jews receiving it with meekness. But the Gentiles on their part would receive the offer more eagerly and readily and in greater numbers. And this was true at every, in every city that they went to. And since the Jews would not believe the gospel, and the Gentiles would, then Acts 18 happened. That's when Paul dusted their feet and they left the Jews to the Gentiles. So Acts 18 is a watershed. And you notice it's beginning Jerusalem, going to Judea, and then to Samaria. But then the Jews would not receive. Now, you know the parable of the two brothers, the prodigal son in Luke 15. When the younger brother returned, the prodigal son returned, and the father ran when he saw him from far off, and he embraced him, and kissed him, and welcomed him back with fatted calves, and with music, and with dancing and celebration. What happened to the elder brother who had not left home? Not very happy. He did not enjoy that fatted calf. So the Bible tells us, remember, that we were no people ourselves. We were not a nation. We were a foolish nation. We were people without understanding. And lest you think that I'm insulting you, Gentiles, this is what the Bible says. Marvel at the word of the good news. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. True? Uh, you, you, can, you can mumble yes, but you know it's the truth. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Do you hear that? 
to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence in the presence of God and because of him you gentiles whether you're in Corinth or in Nairobi because of Christ you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord but can you imagine how much this was a provocation to the jews what a provocation it was to the jews to see the gentiles taken into divine favor that has not quite happened yet the jews have not gotten to a point where they have become envious they still think that christianity is foolish by and large most of the jews still think that our faith is no faith at all they think that judaism is the faith And so you read Acts chapter 13, verse 45, 17, verse 5. I mean, Stephen has already said it in, it in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 21. It's a case of great wickedness of the Jews that they were thus enraged by Gentiles receiving what they rejected. And this was in fulfillment of God's word. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, which had come as a matter of divine threatening. But now it was no longer a threat. It's now the reality. God often makes people sin their punishment. A man needs no greater plague than to be left to the freedom, impetus, rage of his own lusts. And so then we read in, in, in Romans 1, God gave them up. To their debased minds. That's a great punishment. And so the wrath of God. Being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Is right now. Leaving people to live as they want. While the gospel is being proclaimed. Instead of embracing the gospel. They desire and they live in their own folly. Look at the boldness of the prophecy of Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2, which is very bold, full, and plain is cited, where God says, and I quote, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. Thus says the Lord. 
God says that when we seek, we fight. It's a rule for us, not a rule for God. I hope you followed that. When God says, seek and you will fight, is a rule for us to follow. It's not a rule for God to follow. And so God says that often he is found by those who did not seek him. This is a factor of his saving grace. He dispenses it in a way of sovereignty. He gives or withholds it as per his divine prerogative. Therefore, God revealed himself to the Gentiles by setting the light of the gospel among them. God begins in love, his great love, revealed himself to us in his son, and through his son we have grace that leads to salvation. But the rebellion and the obstinacy of Israel is here highlighted both in their rejection of the divine offer and in their own evil conduct. So God offers himself. And then they refuse. And not only do they refuse, but they go on to live in, an, in a wicked way. Notwithstanding the generous offers and the affectionate invitations of God upon them, the Jews have refused. Notice the wonderful offer shown by God to them. What does the Bible say? All day long, all day long, I've held out my hands. God offered them eternal life. God offered them salvation by the gospel of his son. But they preferred eternal death and condemnation in the evil of their own minds. God stretches his welcoming hands. But they would not come. The outstretched hands of God is a gesture of invitation, warm welcome, and acceptance by God. Christ's outstretched arms and hands when he was crucified shows his embrace of love to the world. people that he came to save. He brought reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. And the Bible says, all day long. What does that speak about? God's patience. God's patience towards you. Because the Bible says that God does not wish that any should perish. He says that God does not wish that any should perish. You go to 2 Peter 3 and you see the patience of God. And the Bible says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. God has been patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
all day long, the Bible says. It speaks of God's endurance, of God's patience, of God's long-suffering. All day long, he waits for sinners with grace. All day long. And this message is a further demonstration of the outstretched hands of God wanting to embrace you and to welcome you into his kingdom. Do you hear that, children? God is inviting you, welcoming you. And he is saying, come, come for divine hugs. God wants to hug you, to receive you, to welcome you into his kingdom. What do you wait for? Listen to this. The time of God, the time of God's patience, is how long? All day long. Because the Bible says, today, when you hear his voice, do not do what? Do not harden your heart in rebellion. Because the Bible says that today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. So it is all day long, not two days, not a week long. It's one day long. Is here called a day. Lightsome as a day. And fit for work. Fit for business of the salvation of your soul. But limited as a day. Limited as a day. And a night at the end of it will come. And that, my friend, will be too late. When night comes, it's no longer salvation for you. It will be darkness and gnashing of teeth and pain and weeping and wailing and sorrow and grief. All in one package will be yours if you let the day pass without salvation. He bears long. One day. No longer. He will not bear olives. He will bear and he will stretch his hands to receive you, inviting you into his kingdom, embracing you if you come, but he will not hold out his hands forever. So the advance and the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles, who were until now strangers and, and foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel, is especially aggravated by how the Jews were offered a very generous offer by God. He said, not take it. Pass. Yahweh. Held out his hands like this to them. But they would rather not. But that to their loss. That to their condemnation. The, the difficulty of, of understanding the relationship between the divine election and human responsibility 
is well expressed here. The responsibility involves an ability to respond. But the ability to respond depends on God. However, the biblical doctrine of election teaches that we are morally unable to respond to the offer of the gospel because of our sinful corruption. Yet, the scripture also talks about God inviting everyone to come to Jesus. The universal offer of the gospel. And so the Lord says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says that. Come to me, he says. And if you take this offer, you get rest for your soul. The Bible says concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let that not be you. Don't be in that category of a disobedient and obstinate people who are disobedient and are contrary people. And Paul uses that imagery of God with his palms open, beseeching people, exhorting them, inviting them, telling them to come to him. And he stands there, not just for a second, not just for an hour, not just for a moment, but for all day long. All day long. All day long. And you know what? I don't need to say anything more. I've said everything. But so let me just conclude and tell you this. I'm putting RC's pro. He says this. The reason why people don't come to God is not because God fails to invite them. Nor is it a logical conclusion from the doctrine of predestination. But it is rooted in disobedience and obstinacy in the hearts of unbelievers. It is precisely because man is in a state of rebellion that he will never respond to the gospel unless God sovereignly conquers that rebelliousness in his heart. Stated in another way, anyone can be saved now, if he wants to be saved. But therein lies the problem. No one wants to be saved unless God sovereignly plants a desire in the rebellious heart to come to him. If we were left to ourselves, if there were no election, if there were no predestinating grace, None of us would ever come to Christ simply because we could never want to come because we are by nature disobedient and rebellious. So praise God that he is willing to save you. And he has shown his willingness to save you by holding out his hands and inviting you to come to his embrace, to come to his to his presence in faith. And if you say, I do not have faith, then you can 
Tell God, God, see, I want to come, but I have no faith. Please give it to me. Save me. And at that very moment, he will save you. Amen.